Welcome to Russia. Hello and welcome to another edition of Opposition Cast. And in this episode, we are looking at Russia and in particular the opposition to Vladimir Putin. It's a topic which has received renewed attention following the arrest and detention of the opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, who had recently returned to Moscow after recovering in Germany from a poisoning that was suspected to have been carried out at the behest of the Russian state. Uh, protests at Navalny's arrest broke out across Russia and have continued in recent weeks, sparking a security clampdown by uh, Russian police with thousands of opposition activists being arrested. This has been condemned by governments uh, in the West and in London. The British Foreign Office Minister Wendy Morton expressed the British government's disquiet. The UK is appalled by the politically motivated detention of Alexei Navalny on arbitrary charges. As the Foreign Secretary made clear, Mr Navalny is a victim of a despicable crime and we call for his immediate and unconditional release. The Foreign Secretary has also condemned the Russian authorities' unacceptable use of violence against peaceful protesters and journalists last weekend, and we have called on the Russian government to respect its international commitments and to release those detained during peaceful demonstrations. So, what happens next? More than 20 years into the increasingly authoritarian rule of Vladimir Putin, is his position as unassailable as it often appears to be? Or are we seeing the beginnings of a more sustained and organised opposition uh, to his rule with popular support amongst the Russian people? Well, joining me to discuss those complex issues and questions is somebody who is far more of an expert on Russian politics uh, than I am. Mark Galliotti has written extensively on Russian politics uh, including uh, the opposition to Vladimir Putin. He is uh, the author of We Need to Talk About Putin, How the West Gets Him Wrong, a book published uh, two years ago. And he is an honorary professor at University College London. He presents a podcast called In Moscow's Shadows and is generally just the sort of person you would want to be exploring these issues with. And uh, we began by discussing the protests, the renewed protests that were being organised and which were due to get underway uh, after dark uh, on the evening of Valentine's Day as we recorded the interview. Well, it's actually already happening because obviously Russia being such an 11 time zone country. So in the Far East, where it's already dark, there's already um, photos coming of people exactly out there flash flash mobbing away. It did strike me as being slightly odd that... um, they would be encouraged to um, post on social media. I would have thought that would be a gift to the security services to identify anyone who wants to take part in it. I suppose the issue is that there's a limit to just how much time and effort you can go into, like sort of dragging out every single person who who posts a, a selfie on Twitter or whatever. It's actually, in some ways, it's necessary because you have to create some sense of community. Mm. Um, and if you can't go out in a sort of crowd on the streets, because otherwise the National Guard will come and break your knees, then at least this way you can sort of share the hashtag. Mm. 
Yeah, so more, rather more difficult to crack down on, I suppose. And I just, I just thought I'd start with um, before we sort of get into the kind of protests and the the many issues around um, Putin and, and opposition to him. Just sort of looking at your your interest in it, and um, I gather first of all we'll we'll get the plug out of the way first of all. You've got a new book out uh, last month, is it? A, a short history of Russia, is that right? It, it is exactly sort of a heartbreaking task to try and squeeze the whole history of this country into two hundred pages. But there you go. <laughs> well, I think it sort of follows in the tradition of the of your previous one of being a sort of a fairly digestible read. Um, the, uh, the the previous book, which. Uh, uh, I have to confess, I've uh, I've only uh, had a chance to to just flick through, but uh, we need to talk about Putin. Was I think two years ago you published that, wasn't mm-hmm. it? Yes, um, and that's that's rather more accessible. But you, you by training, you're you're an historian. So, wh- how did you get um, so interested in in Russia from your 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 previous sort of uh, career as a, and I, I speak as one as a dusty academic. <laughs> well, I mean, in some ways, look, I've always been interested in Russia and. Often this is down to some sort of family connection or whatever. I don't know if my English grandfather, having briefly served in the expeditionary force to southern Russia in 1918, counts. For me, though, look, I mean, I, I'm an essentially a, a bear of little brain in this respect. I mean, I'm a historian because basically it's all about the stories. And as far as I'm concerned, Russia has and always had the best stories. The, the blood is that much more incarnadine the horrors more horrific and the heroism more heroic as a result. And so, you know, obviously I did did my first degree in history and then my PhD was, it was in the government department at the LSE. So I kind of straddle, well, I would certainly never call myself a political scientist, but politics and history. But I see myself these days as much more of a, almost a a contemporary historian, shall we say. Yes, I think contemporary we we contemporary historians uh, I think uh, sometimes get the worst of both worlds in that political scientists see us as not sufficiently scientific and historians don't see us as sufficiently historic. I think that's probably about right. Exactly. I mean, we 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 are jumped up journalists in that respect, <laughs> but much more relevant for it. I think um, applied history, I like to call it. Um, and um, just to sort of go back to the the book that you published um, a couple of years ago about um, we we need to talk about Putin. The, the basis of that was that um, you think that uh, the West generally gets Putin wrong. What is it that people get wrong about Putin? I think it's to a large extent because he is. I mean, on the one hand, he is a global brand. You you, you can get calendars of him, and there's all the memes around Putin and so forth. But actually, as a person in part because I think he is actually a rather dull individual, but also because he's a very private, private secretive one about his, his personal life. And he has become something of a cipher, a sort of political Rorschach ink blot test, onto which we, we project all kinds of other assumptions. And for various reasons in the West, I think that we have accepted this notion of him as a sort of grand three-dimensional chess player, as this really sort of real-world equivalent of a Bond villain lacking only in an extinct volcano lair. And, and so I think for all these reasons, actually, much of the discussion about Putin says much more about us than it does really about Russia. I think the other thing about um, you say about that, you know, if you look at his, his history, you use the analogy that he's not a chess player, he's a, a, a Jaduko. What do you mean by that exactly? Is it just that he's not, not as sophisticated as we give him credit for? Well, I think there's, there's shall we say, different sophistications. 
Um, again, I, I think there is this sort of orientalist myth about the sort of the Russians as these chess players. You know, they're always sort of put in that format. I mean, they're the ones who have worked things out seven moves in advance of us. And that also is a convenient alibi um, for what have often been traumatically uh, badly thought through policies towards Russia from the West, and that therefore certain sort of mishaps, it's easy to blame other Russians. I mean, and we've done this, you know, even since some Trump to Brexit to you, whatever, you can use Russian interference as a handy scapegoat for just simply the fact that the vote didn't go your way. But more broadly, I mean, I think that if one looks at Putin's way of, you know, his style of leadership, this is not a man who comes up with a, a detailed plan with a specific timeline and sticks to it and follows it through no matter which way. And I mean, although I don't think it's because he's also very much into judo, but nonetheless, a handy metaphor to counter the chess metaphor is exactly, you know, if you are a judo fighter, you may well know your opponent, you know his or her signature moves and have some sense of how you might react to them. But essentially, you go into the ring, you start circling your opponent and you're looking for the opportunity. And when that opportunity arises, you have to strike. And I think that's much more actually how Putin's Russia operates. It is essentially opportunistic. It has an idea of what it would like to see. It has no real idea of how it would get there. Great power status, regarded as an equal by the West and so forth. And therefore, it just simply is looking for opportunities and strikes when it can. Mm. And obviously, if you're, if you're the, the West and you're trying to counter um, Russia and, and um, Putin's... Um, leadership or if you're a, a domestic opponent of uh, of the government it's important that you understand the nature of what it is that you are opposing um do you think there is an understanding amongst um the wider russian public of of, of who putin is or does he maintain this air of of mystery domestically obviously his uh, you talked about the fact that there's there's a, a putin brand of sort of calendars and things you know he does portray uh, for domestic consumption, this image of the sort of the hard man and the sort of, um, you know, the uh, bare chested horse riding kind of hero. Um, is that something which is which remains prevalent? Does that propaganda actually um, chime with the Russian people? Or are they starting to see through him? Um, I think, you know, the uh, the recent protests coincided, I think, with the, the release of a, a documentary about um, corruption, a long running theme, which we'll probably get on to. Um, are we starting to see cracks in the um, in the sort of popularity that he's enjoyed perhaps up to now? If I can kind of play with the metaphor, not, not so much cracks as a fading. Remember back in maybe 2019 now, back in the days when one could still travel, um, I was coming back to Moscow from uh, the town of Kolomna and just obviously doing what one does, which is shamefully eavesdropping on the conversations around me. And I heard some people talking about you know, politics and, you know, clearly these, these were not, um, you know, political wonks. These are just, you know, people talking about, you know, complaining about something going on. And for the very first time, I heard someone refer to Putin as Tariq, as the old man. And again, I thought that was really interesting because it does speak to a wider thing that we're seeing is actually that there is a sense that they're tired of him and in some ways that he seems to be tired of them. Let's be honest, you know, he, he has been in power for 20 years, in, in effect, which is longer than anyone ought to be in power. 
doesn't matter how good they are. Because after that point, particularly if you're an authoritarian leader, you do tend to get out of touch. You fall back onto old ways. You become something of a caricature of yourself. You surround yourself on the whole with people who agree with rather than challenge your worldview. All these kind of uh, besetting sins. And it doesn't matter if we're talking about Margaret Thatcher or Vladimir Putin. In a way, similar processes tend to hold true when everyone has fairly authoritarian figures who've been around for some time. And this, this element of tiredness with the Russians on Putin's part, I think has also already communicated itself. I mean, he, he used to be fairly energetic in, as it were, supporting his brand. So he would, for example, quite often travel out to other parts of Russia where there was some particular local problem and local dispute. And he would metaphorically parachute in, I'm sure, so they were considered him actually doing it literally at some point. Um, and, you know, on television, he would berate the local governor or the local factory owner or whatever. And he'd expect them to do things better. And there'll be some money forthcoming from Moscow, really to emphasize this notion that he was the, the good czar who was on the side of the peasantry against the evil aristocrats, which is a classic trope that goes back centuries. And Putin actually played to it with considerable success. There was that sense of, look, you know, the trouble is Putin doesn't know what's going on. If only we can get Putin to find out, he would fix it, blah, blah, blah. These days, I mean, even before coronavirus, um, he really had, had very much uh, slowed down the pace of this. He just couldn't be bothered. He had these massive um, direct line kind of in some cases, sort of you know, phone marathons of you know him talking to the people, and you know Olga from Irkutsk could ring up with a question. Clearly, all pre-organized and such like, because he always had the answers with all the facts and figures ready. Um, but I must admit, the most recent ones, looking at him, I mean, I actually felt quite sorry for him. He was so obviously bored out of his mind at having to answer one more question from one of the little people about, I don't know, should uh, her husband let him have a dog? That was an actual one. Um, and are Chinese made tracking systems acceptable for, I think I can't remember if it was sheep, goats or cattle, but anyway, all those kind of questions. And, you know, he, he was probably thinking, who the hell stuck me with this thing? Because once you start a tradition, it's very hard. I mean, you know, in some ways, coronavirus was his great benefit in this respect because mm. he was able to use that to, to minimize it. So, you know, anyway, Putin himself has been detaching himself from the Russians. And I think the Russians themselves, the Russians originally associated him with the man who kind of brought back order and actually a good quality of life after the chaos of the 1990s, which was a horrific period of anarchy, unless you happen to be in the 0.01% who was making money hand over fist. But the point is, something that you did 20 years ago does not work today in politics. Mm. There is that sense very much that he is no longer the man he was and that the challenges are no longer the old ones and that he doesn't have in a way the answers for the future. And he represents that last gasp of the generation of Homo Sovieticus, the true sort of figures who didn't just rise and uh, have their educations in Soviet times, but also their formative early careers. They were very much, you know, socialized into that world. Well, now he finds himself fighting a 44-year-old in, in Alexei Navalny, who represents a very different political generation. And even if people do not actually like Navalny or support him, nonetheless, I think there is a question about whether or not the 68-year-old Putin is quite still the guy they need. Mm. And uh, we'll, we'll get on to talking about Navalny um, in a moment. But, I but before we do, I think the... Um, 
uh, in some of your recent writing, you've spoken about this sort of increasing short-termism um, in, in Putin's outlook. Um, with the recent um, constitutional referendum and changes to the constitution, there was speculation that um, this was about him trying to stay in power until 2036. Um, but, but you didn't see it quite like that, did you? No, I mean, look, I think... It is it possible that Putin will end up trying to stay in power until 2036? Yes, but I suspect that that's his very sort of last fallback option. Again, this is a man who does seem to be bored and tired with the job. But on the other hand, it's always the danger. What do you do when you're an authoritarian leader? How do you hand over power when you have no formal structures for succession? There is no understood sort of etiquette. And, you know, although Putin was actually a relatively loyal client, I mean, to, to Boris Yeltsin, the man who elevated him in 1999, and the, the so-called family, which was not, not just his uh, Yeltsin's actual family, but you know, those people around him. But on the whole, as long as they didn't go up against Putin, Putin was a, a, a let them sort of live a good life and enjoy their ill-gotten gains and such like. And in a way, that's what he would presumably want. But the point is, he would have to be able to trust someone. Because in such a system in which actually the law always takes place to politics, a second place to politics, you are basically giving someone control over, well, literally your life, but also your finances, your quality of life and so forth. But the point is that before, in 2019, the issue of succession had become a totally obsessing factor within the sort of Moscow political and chattering classes precisely because in 2024, his term was meant to end, and everyone was thinking, okay, well, who, who's gonna be next? And this was destabilizing and debilitating for the Putin regime. It made him into a lame duck president, and he couldn't allow that for political reasons, but I also think for psychological reasons. And therefore, this constitutional move that would basically zero his term limits, I think was more meant to basically take the issue of succession off the table and say, look, I can basically hang around here as long as I want. So stop talking about it, just get on with your jobs and leave the kind of this level of high politics to me. There is still clearly a process going on behind the scenes to think who might be a potential future successor. But at present, and again, I think like so many other things, I think the coronavirus year has basically put everything on hold. Um, but at present, it's certainly not for public discussion. And again, it all depends on Putin's capacity to trust, which is not something I necessarily want to rely on. Mm. And I think he's, um, from my well, fairly limited uh, layman's reading of, um, of some of the politics of it, that the, um, the interconnectedness of the, the Russian elite is something which um, it looks quite difficult to escape from. You have sort of all of those who, uh, you know, the the billionaires who uh, all um, share different um, assets between them and um, that sort of web of different connections. I imagine it, it is quite difficult for any one of them to, to break free of that. And if he's uh, retiring from power, he's giving huge power, as you say, to those who nominally actually own most of his assets, I would imagine, as well. Well, this is the case, um, and, and it's it's been very much highlighted. You mentioned this video that came out recently mm. about sort of Putin's palace, which, you know, to be honest, we've known about for a decade, but nonetheless has never been um, brought to the Russian people's attention, particularly with, 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 with such kind of witty aplombs by Navalny. Um, and, you know, again, if we're honest, absolutely probably isn't simply Putin's palace in a sense of there is no title deed with his name on it anywhere. Mm. 
It is part of, it's interesting that they basically started to use this term obshak, which is actually comes from Russian criminal slang for a gang's kind of common fund, which was there to, if someone went to prison or whatever, to look after their needs and that kind of thing. Well, now we find that term obshak being used increasingly for precisely these kind of common funds of groups of oligarchs and corrupt senior figures and so forth, who, you know, don't necessarily want to have their names involved anywhere, but nonetheless all have access to wh whether it's uh, you know physical assets or pots of money or, or mm. anything else. So yes, absolutely, it creates this exceedingly sort of complex uh, political economic environment. But on the other hand, the irony is that's also a force for stability. I mean, what would happen if, say, tomorrow Putin died? I don't know if you could overdose from Botox or not. Um, <laughs> On the one hand, you know, it would leave this Putin-shaped hole in the system that has become incredibly personalized. I mean, he is much more popular than his system, after all. But on the other hand, I can't help feeling, I'm sort of keep going back to that uh, very splendid film, The Death of Stalin, in which you've got the, the kind of the grandees scheming on Stalin's death and keeping it quiet from, from, the, from the Soviet people. And clearly what they want is not another Stalin but in a way someone who will wield the same powers of the state but for their collective good well look, obviously putin is not stalin and this is not a stalinist system by any stretch of the imagination but i suspect that what we would get actually is much the same is autocracy replaced by oligarchy mm. that some president would be found probably a fairly weak figure who was meant to be just a sort of chairman of the board and in this respect the fact that the elite is so interconnected actually means they all have a shared common interest in maintaining stability and also presumably in maintaining the system that's been very good to them. Um, but, but could that be the, I mean, is that mo the most likely downfall um, of Putin and, and Putinism um, is the fact that, as you say, the, the people are beginning to wake up to the fact that um, there is a, not only a huge amount of corruption, which I'm sure they're all aware of uh, in any case, but also that there is vast amounts of, of wealth being plundered uh, for the benefit of um, of oligarchs and Putin himself. Um, the protests seem to sort of focus a lot on that and some of the comments from people who were out protesting was, was on that basis. Um, is that something which is likely to, to sort of grow as people sort of realise this is what's going on? I think so, and I think this is why Navalny has been so effective at, at building this, um, well, I sometimes call it the coalition of the fed up. This is not that everyone came out to protest because they're Navalnyites or because they know what Navalny stands for. I mean, we don't know really what Navalny stands for other than reform and democracy and law mm. government state. Um, or even that they like Navalny. It's more that a lot of people have a great deal of uh, issues on which they feel disgruntled issues on which they feel the status quo is not working for them. And it could be because their, their, their pensions are, are falling behind the cost of living, or it could be because um, exactly corruption has meant that some sort of local immunities have, have still not been built or whatever. And the key thing is that corruption is in some ways the, the magic linchpin. Corruption is the one issue that holds it together because that is basically why most things that don't work don't work because there isn't the money there because it's been embezzled or because the money is there but it's not being used by the right people and again most of it is being stolen. And the thing about corruption is it's one of these issues that crosses every single class, age, ethnicity and regional boundary. 
It doesn't matter if you're a professor in Petropavlovsk or a bus driver in, I really shouldn't have started trying to use things with, with alliteration. Um, you know, so I'm trying to think, Belgorod. Um, you will have your own experiences of corruption. And so, you know, it, it is a, a unifying force. So, this, you know, just as this, the strength of Navalny is that this can, can bring a lot of people out on the, onto the streets, the weakness is they're not necessarily out for him. And if someone else can come up with what seems to be a better answer for all their woes, then they might well go for that. But I think the, the rising tide of disaffection, I think, is absolutely something that will happen. And therefore, the question is precisely who, who is going to be able in the future to mobilize this most effectively? Because I think there's any real grounds. I mean, although the state is trying to bring forward what it calls its national projects, which are meant to be addressing a whole issue, range of issues from infrastructure onwards, and in part, make people's lives better. It's not going to happen any day, not going to happen any year. So, you know, actually for, for a while, people are going to be unhappy with the status quo. And so, yes, that's a change. But one other point I want to make is there's also a lot of dissatisfaction within the, the elite. We shouldn't assume that just because they're all, you know, driving BMWs and living in nice flats, they're necessarily happy. Because in some ways, what's happened is Putin's changed over time. What they, what they liked was early Putin. Putin of the 2000s, who talked tough on nationalism, but basically was also very, very pragmatic. And these were the era, this is the era when basically the mantra was, steal at home, bank abroad. So absolutely, you embezzle your money, but then you go, you go and, you, and, and you, you launder it through the city of London, and you send your kids to exclusive private schools and universities, and you buy your jeet in France, and all these other sort of things. They didn't sign up for some kind of ideological crusade with the West. And I think that is one of the areas of genuine dissatisfaction. Now, again, at the moment, it's vastly too dangerous for them to do anything about it. But nonetheless, behind the scenes, there is a lot of grumbling, not necessarily the very top of the system, the people around Putin, but you know, the, the people on whom the system relies, um, you know, the, the colonels and the generals, the department managers, and not the oligarchs, but the minigarchs. Um, you know, these are all the people who, although they're doing really well, they feel they're not doing as well as they, they ought and are worried about the longevity of the system. So I think this is an interesting situation in which there is, there is growing disaffection across um, all of aspects of society. And it's interesting that sort of in some ways, when you, you talk about it like that, it, it sounds as though the normal rules of politics are sort of applying that, you know, governments over time degrade in their popularity. Uh, leaders, as you say, get fed up with the job and become less fresh and start resorting to, um, to rather less, um, less interesting ideas and, um, and are seen to be uh, sort of exhausted and tired. Um, but, you know, the Russian system is not a, <laughs> a traditional political system. And one of the things that is notably missing is a an alternative government that we don't have in the terms that we would understand it an opposition um and um you know you've got a, a figure as you say now um in navalny who is talked of in uh, certainly in, in the western media as being the opposition leader but certainly not in the sense that we would understand it and, and as you say we don't know an awful lot about him i mean is we've seen other leaders sort of um you know in, in the past talked of as um, the leader of, um, of Russia's um, opposition. I mean, we think of Boris um, Nemtsov um, as well being sort of seen as a prominent figure. But in reality, as you say, it is more of a, of a coalition of the fed up, as you said. And so there isn't a standing opposition. 
what what do we know about Navalny and his uh, where where he came from? As you say, people aren't really coming out onto the streets in favour of a a vision that he's putting forward. It is more a sense of what they're against rather than what they're for. Yes, though, again, in some ways, that's also part of the nature of, of normal politics. No, I mean, I think if we look well, at indeed, Navalny... Well, indeed, we were talking the other week on the podcast about um, uh, about the US election, and, you know, th- there was certainly much more uh, enthusiasm uh, amongst those who were voting for, for, for Biden and being against Trump than they were in terms mm. of being massively in favour of, of, of Joe Biden. So I think, you know, there is that, that, that sense in, in normal politics, but it's very strikingly the case here, I think, isn't it? It is. And again, it's in, inevitable when you have a system in which the state controls not all, but much of the media, certainly the sort of the, the, the older style, you know, television, radio and much of the print media. And so for a long time, Navalny was completely excluded from that. You know, no one heard about him. His name was not even mentioned. He was the Voldemort of the system. But I think what we see is if, if you look at Navalny, I mean, this, this is a guy who, look, he clearly is not without the sort of the hubris that is necessary to be a political leader, especially one who's willing to challenge uh, rather vicious, entrenched authoritarian kleptocracy. In the past, I mean, he has demonstrated on one hand, he was, certainly in the 1990s, he was very, I hesitate to call him neocon or neoliberal, but, you know, very much into the rapid privatization of the economy, less concerned about the social impacts that that meant. I mean, I think, you know, if we were going to place him in terms of Western politics, you know, we, he would probably be considered to be centre-right. Now, there's also uh, an element of nationalism and even downright racism that we've seen in his track record. I mean, he has in the past, uh, yeah, made some very sort of disparaging racial slurs about people from the North Caucasus and such like. In some ways, though, I think one is, look, he is someone whose whole life is very much at the sort of visible. Again, this is the nature of the modern social media panopticon age. Um, is that you don't get to say stupid things 10 years ago and, and, and not have it brought up. And I'm not sure if he, I mean, although he hasn't given the opportunity, he hasn't sort of apologised for it, but I'm not sure he would say it. And it's worth mentioning that many people who are non-ethnic Russian, Russian citizens are passionate supporters of Navalny. They don't see him as, as an enemy. Now he seems to be sort of shifting more into the center, even in some ways policy-wise to the left. And it's quite interesting that actually there's this kind of uh, an informal alliance that seems to be emerging between Navalny's people and um, elements of the Communist Party in Russia, who are not happy with the fact that their leadership is is basically content to remain a kind of fake opposition party just to preserve the illusion of democracy. But I think these are essentially opportunistic tactical moves. None of this in a way matters, though, because Navalny is not standing for power. Navalny is standing for a, a belief that there needs to be change, there needs to be democratic process, law, state and elections. As and when there are those real elections, then absolutely that will be the time to have the debate about whether or not, and obviously it'll be Russians who have this debate, whether or not Navalny is the right person to lead the country. But at present, he is, as it were, just simply the the sharp edge of the blade, trying to actually cut through the control that Putin's system um, maintains o- over the political process, and actually trying to get some, uh, you know, real pluralism reintroduced. And in the, you know, in, in that respect, I mean, I think there is absolutely no evidence to suggest that he's anything other than genuinely committed 
I mean, this is a man who clearly is very strong in his belief on pluralism and also rule of law and equality of law for all. That's that's quite interesting, and and, and I mean, from looking at his um, his CV and where he's sort of come from, essentially, you know, there there is a, a notable lack of what we've seen in some other um, opposition leaders of in the past, um, particularly Boris Nemtsov. There is no real um, involvement in government, um, whereas we have had previous um, sort of opposition leaders who have previously been sort of part of the system and have then sort of uh, turned and, and therefore have some greater claim to um, perhaps credibility um, and uh, being sort of insiders who have who have sort of then taken a different approach. Um, Navalny clearly is a a, a sort of a, a popular politician in the sense of, of being one who is you know relies on, on a populist movement against corruption rather than being somebody who has come from sort of the, the the elite or from from government himself do you think that that makes it more or less likely that he and the movement he represents are going to to be able to to make an impact um or is it a, a case that when you're trying to sort of overturn a system that has become so ingrained that you need to have somebody who is perhaps more um inside the tent as a kind of transitional leader um how do you see it, it playing out in terms of the sort of electoral politics and and the sort of transition to a sort of post-putin era and this is a really interesting question because absolutely this notion of you know someone who has experience inside the tent I and mean, of course that carries with it the fact that they're also to an extent compromised and there is that question of you know maybe you know are they just compromised enough that they are plausible transition figures who can, as it were, bring the existing elite along and say, look, don't worry, it's not going to be as scary as you fear. We can sort things out. But on the other hand, bring real change. The thing is, I mean, Navalny, if one looks at his past, I mean, for a while, he was very much involved as an activist shareholder. One of these people who identify badly run companies, get enough shares that they could go and um, speak at the sort of shareholders meetings and such like. And in some ways, that is the model that he's bringing to politics of being an activist shareholder, saying, look, I am a citizen, and therefore I, I demand my, my chance to speak. Now, that is exactly good for raising profile, raising excitement, bringing to Russians. I mean, what's absolutely crucial is that this is a regime, the Putin regime has not on the whole depended on fear and violence. It's not like one of those authoritarianisms. It's, it's, it's a postmodern hybrid authoritarianism that depends largely on controlling narrative, and in particular by generating what we could think of as political apathy. It's just not worth hassling and agitating because you're not gonna get anywhere. And anyway, all of the leaders are equally corrupt and what's mm. the point? There is scope, I mean, actually there is a surprisingly vibrant civil society in Russia because you're, you're, as it were, allowed to campaign on very local issues, as long as you pretend that they're not symptoms of big national issues. As long as you pretend it's just about this rubbish dump, rather than you know national policy mm. so i mean in that respect you know actually navalny's got the exactly what it takes to try and bring back some sense of hope and optimism the belief that change is possible which is a prerequisite for there to be any, any change but there will absolutely be that inflection point moment can he also speak to the elite i mean if basically all he's offering is pitchforks in the street and nooses hanging from lampposts, then obviously people are going to resist. They're going to resist to the last point because they have no reason to do otherwise. Mm. 
And that I'm not yet sure about. I mean, how, how do you reach out to the security apparatus and say, look, you know, we know you've just been following orders, but you know, there will come a time when you're going to have to say no to the orders, but don't worry, you know, we, we understand you've been in a difficult point. Even to the rich and powerful, I mean, are, is Navalny going to be in a position to, in effect, offer a kind of first million amnesty that says, look, you know, either, either it'll be year zero, just don't steal any more, <laughs> and you can keep what you've stolen or will it be a look you know we're going to tax you and so forth but as long as you you know pay back half of what you stole then you know we'll call it quits or whatever particular mm. mechanism but something that more or less says there is a way out of this and you're still going to live really well you're still going to live better than any russian could even dream of doing so but just not at those stratospheric heights you used to that i'm not sure about and in some ways by his decision to go back to russia which was you know, an astonishing feat of not just bravery, but also patriotism. Mm. You know, and, and because he wanted not to be another one of those emigre leaders who from a sort of cushy birth in a, a think tank in the West or some directorships, exhorts Russians to put themselves in harm's way by protesting. No, he wanted to be there to show he had skin mm. in the game. And that, I mean, does potentially make him a powerful moral example if his people can keep him alive in the public imaginary rather than him just getting lost somewhere mm. in, you know, Labour Colony 47 or whatever. <laughs> um, but that also runs the risk of putting him in a position where precisely he cannot make the compromises. I mean, it's interesting that people at one point, when he was first uh, arrested and imprisoned, were kind of comparing him with Nelson Mandela, which was always, I thought, a deeply problematic and, and rather kind of crass comparison. Mm. Um, but it, it, it will be interesting to see, well, okay, what kind of a figure is he? Is he a kind of, I mean, for want of a better parallel, Jerry Adams, Martin McGuinness type situation, who can bring, now, okay, in a, in a totally non-violent context, mm. but nonetheless can find a way of, as it were, bringing the opposition in and making a deal with the people who currently have the power and the guns. Mm. Or, or not. And I, I'm not so sure if he yet has got that capacity to really make the final compromises and whether it's going to have to be someone else mm. who actually positions himself precisely, at, well, and I say him, himself, it could be herself, but knowing Russian politics, it's more likely to be himself, mm. um, you know, precisely as that balancing figure who can turn to the existing people and say, look, you know, look, that, that Navalny, he's way, way out there. I think I can restrain him, but you're going to have to work with me. Mm. And likewise, who can turn to Navalny's people and say, look, I know you'd like to go further, but, you know, we, if, we, if we're going to avoid a bloodbath, we need to make compromises. That's what I'm not sure I'm yet seeing in the political process. Mm. But there's years to go yet. This is a start of a long process, not a quick one. Yes. So a bit of triangulation, probably. Exactly. So from, from 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 some figure, and you touched there on um, the the way in which the, the the Putin regime sort of deals with opposition, and that it's not a sort of traditional um, kind of um, sort of dictatorship cracking down heavily on on everything for for the sake of it. It is more about controlling narratives, and I wonder whether, as you say, the sort of almost. Um, kind of propaganda coup of returning to Russia and being arrested that, that uh, Navalny um, was able to pull off, um, you know, which was carried live on television. And, you know, the, the Russian people saw that that's what happened. Um, and he must have known that's what's going to happen. It, 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 I think, perhaps answered the question about why on earth you would do that, as you say, because it did sort of enhance his reputation. But from um, Putin's perspective, 
the whole process of arresting him and uh, and uh, sort of jailing him on trumped up charges is part of an effort not necessarily to neutralize him but actually just to discredit him isn't it really very much so and it's interesting because after the initial charges which were about a, again a, a deeply iffy uh, claim of embezzlement he's now currently on another charge which is of slandering a great patriotic yes, war indeed. veteran which i mean you know next to drank i don't know drowning cute kitty cats in the river moskva you know is is, is as close to sacrilege as, as as one one could think of so you know i think this is it they, they're clearly trying to create all kinds of delegitimating narratives and meanwhile you've had putin um and a gathering of russian journalists basically suggesting that, that navalny is just simply a, a weapon of the west mm. bought and paid for and this is all about just subverting and trying to constrain and uh, contain the west so yes we, we have all these you know, frankly often quite tired um old sort of strategies being being wheeled out but in that respect it does show how navalny took the initiative as i said i mean he was a total non-person before now obviously a lot of people of the more uh, you know internet savvy variety were aware of his you know youtube videos about the corruption of the rich and powerful and such like but in some ways that was a self-selecting audience and even the people who watched it, I, I can't help but feel for some, it, this was more like, I don't know, Hello magazine. You know, you did it precisely for the salacious gossip and the views of people's tacky interior decorating, <laughs> rather than because it was a political act and you're willing to go out on the streets for. But now, absolutely, he has now become a person. And although the state is doing everything it can to discredit him, at least in the process, he has moved, in my opinion, from being, shall we say, an, an oppositionist dissident to actually a politician. Mm. And we've now got the um, the uh, elections to the Duma, I think, coming up. Is that this year or next year? This year, September. And what is the outlook for that? Um, uh, is it um, likely that there's going to be a um, uh, much of a... Um, permitted opposition um, able to sort of mount a, any kind of challenge there. What is the shape of the sort of um, the kind of establishment opposition parties and, and, and where are they likely to stand in those elections? Well, look, the establishment opposition parties are, again, also looking increasingly tired. But then again, so too is United Russia bloc, which is the, the, the pro-Kremlin one. I mean, the, the, the main two opposition parties, the Communist Party and the Liberal Democratic Party, the Liberal Democratic Party that is absolutely neither liberal nor democratic, <laughs> but really a kind of ultranationalist platform for, for this sort of rather buffoonish figure, Zhirinovsky, who in some ways was, imagine a smarter Trump before there was a Trump. Um, and, and their role has always been, in some ways, to, to be unattractive opposition so that it makes the, 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 the pro-government party look, look a bit better. The thing is, this is an area in which actually you know, Navalny was, was beginning to pose a problem for the, for the Kremlin and its political managers, because he was advocating something which he called smart voting, which is basically just encouraging tactical voting. Mm. That in every sort of constituency, they would basically tell people which candidate has the best chance of supplanting United Russia, regardless of who it was, whether it was an independent or a communist or a liberal democrat or whatever. The idea was to just hold your nose and vote for whoever is not the United Russia candidate. And that didn't pose a, a risk of, of toppling United Russia. But the point is, the thing about Russian elections is what really matters is never the result. 
The result is whatever the Kremlin plans the result <laughs> to be. The real issue is how much effort does the Kremlin have to put in to getting that result? So how much suppression beforehand? How much handing out or promising of sweeteners? And when the day comes, how much outright ballot box rigging? Mm. And how obvious is it going to be? So really, the whole effort of, of this kind of campaign was not to not the expectation that there will suddenly be loads of anti-government candidates in the parliament, but in some ways to force the government to have to work hard and for that to be really obvious. Because let's mm. be honest, if one looks in neighbouring Belarus, I mean, the trigger for the current um, rising against dictator Alexander Lukashenko was precisely the fact of a, an, an especially egregious and above all offensively obvious um, stealing of a vote. Mm. So in some ways, it was actually to try and push the Kremlin into an uncomfortable position in which it had to make a decision of either accept losses, which even if it still controls the Duma, the fact that if, let's say, it lost its supermajority, it wouldn't in practice change its control over the political system, but it would be a tremendous embarrassment. And again, push the momentum against the government or did it force the Kremlin into being really, really clumsy and obvious in how far it rigs with all the potential backlash that that could have in terms of, again, regalvanizing the protest movement and just delegitimizing the state? So, yes, this is why, you know, although it's not about the election count, but nonetheless, these elections do count. Mm. That's a really interesting way of looking at it, that you can tell a lot about the, the, the true result from the amount of effort that's gone into securing the actual result. Um, I'm also intrigued by this idea of sort of um, uh, of the sort of house trained opposition parties whose job is to be so incompetent as to make the government look look good. I mean, um, I, I can imagine that um, that might be a, 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 an accusation thrown at um, certain other opposition leaders in the past, perhaps not. Uh, um, not quite as accurately. Um, and outside of sort of the elected politics um, of, of those elections and perhaps future presidential elections where, um, as you say, you know, the, the interesting thing is not perhaps the result, but the, the amount of effort that will have to go into um, securing the, um, the Kremlin's um, favoured vote. But in terms of the opposition movement itself, how, how do you think that they are going to be able to sustain the momentum? As you say, the, the biggest thing that, that Putin has on his side is promoting apathy. The idea that, you know, it doesn't really matter how much effort you, you go to in terms of going out and protests, sharing the hashtags. Um, we're recording this on, on, on Sunday, on Valentine's Day, and there's a, a movement to have um, uh, to have activists sort of sharing content um, on uh, this evening. I think we're putting sort of heart shapes out, out outside the houses and posting photographs and that sort of thing all those kind of things. But, you know, if, if that goes on for a few weeks and a few months and, and, and so on, but doesn't really make much difference, the numbers going out to protest will decline and so on. That's that's kind of the, the natural sort of pattern of this that we've seen before. What are they best off doing to try and sort of increase the momentum, to keep it going, to make it a sustainable um, opposition when, you know, these, these things are, you know, are a marathon, not a sprint? Now, this is absolutely the, the, the critical policy dilemma that faces them now. And I think one of the key things is actually about that, in some ways, the battle now moves into the realms of institutionalizing the protest movement, and it moves out of Moscow and into the regions. Because one of the interesting things we saw about the, the recent spate of protests 
is it's not big crowds in Moscow and St. Petersburg. We've seen those before. But the fact that, in fact, there were crowds out in cities all across Russia, in many cases, cities that hadn't really seen much in the way of protests before. And so this was actually, for the first time, I would say, a truly national movement. Now, again, because much of this was sort of ad hoc, I mean, again, the first protest, they basically sort of called it at a week's notice when, when Navalny was first arrested. Um, although there is a network of, of Team Navalny headquarters that have been sort of set up around the country, it's a very, very threadbare operation still at this stage. Time and time again, Navalny tried to set up a political party, and time and time again, the Kremlin found some different pretext for, for disallowing it. And so what this means is that they've obviously had to try and find other, you know, basically build, build out their own political party in all but an actual capacity to stand in elections. But it's not that well developed at this stage. And already we're getting a sign. And certainly, look, if I was a morally bankrupt colonel of the Federal Security Service, sitting in the big grey building on Lubyanka, and someone said, OK, you know, what's our strategy? I would basically go for this kind of strategy which often works when you're dealing with both organized crime or terrorist movements, which is you don't hit the people at the top of the system, because if need be, someone else will stand in their place. You hit the, all the crucial specialists at the middle rank. And in Team Navalny, the crucial specialists are precisely those people around the country who have the local knowledge and the local connections, but they don't have big movements. They don't have, um, you know, Western journalists on speed dial. No one even knows about them, probably. They don't have social capital if they're arrested. And already, I think we're beginning to see more and more of these are being picked off by the authorities. And conversely, this is exactly where Team Navalny need to be putting their effort. They need to have a network of people who actually can tap into all the various local politics and local concerns and keep it relevant in that respect. Second thing they have to do is again pose a challenge to what's the so-called systemic opposition, which are these kind of fake opposition parties. Now, as I say, it's not really with the Liberal Democrats, but we are seeing it with the Communist Party. You know, there are quite a few people, again, not at the very top of the party, but who actually came out in support of Navalny and, and the protests. At least they said, look, you know, this should not be being suppressed. Um, there is, for example, uh, some kind of connection between Navalny and uh, Rashkin, who's the head of the Moscow City Communist Party. And we've seen people actually being arrested and so forth, communists, for being part of the protests. Uh, and the, the reason is, in a way, there's a lot of people who join the Communist Party, not because they thought Marx and Engels had written some rattling good page turners, but because they wanted to be opposed, you know, in a way, they, they, they were opposed to the system but they wanted that comfort of feeling they were part of a structure rather than just simply going out on the streets as a one-person picket and run the risk that the police are going to just then pick you up. So in a way, they, they range from genuine communists to what really we, we would consider social democrats. But, but essentially, they're just people who are opposed to the system. And these are this, is, this generation of people are increasingly unhappy with the gerontocracy at the top of the Communist Party, of people who are essentially, you know, they've been, they've been there for, for, again, for 20 odd years, they are bought and paid for by the Kremlin. They would do anything to avoid actually looking as if they are a genuine challenge. And whenever we have crucial votes in parliament, they always side with the government. Well, there is now a, 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 a sort of a potential for a split within the Communist Party. And that, again, represents a massive opportunity because the Communist Party has the only nationwide political machine 
that is independent of Kremlin funding. And yeah, I mean, a lot of it is people who are kind of Stalinist grannies and, and, and others who are not necessarily Navalny's natural constituency. But that's the point, because these are exactly the people who are going to go and do leafleting of, of you know, run down housing mm. estates in the outskirts or wherever. You know, this would allow Team Navalny to move beyond essentially being a kind of Twitter and Telegram movement into more old fashioned politics. Mm. So there are opportunities, but unfortunately, if I can think of them, I'm sure there's a lot of political technologists sitting in the Kremlin who can also think of them. Mm. And already they're, they're trying to block off these particular routes. That's a fascinating sort of roadmap to, uh, um, to sort of building a political movement. It's almost as a sort of British political historian, it sort of reminds me of the the SDP Liberal Alliance that you had a sort of on the one hand a kind of elite split off from from the Labour Party um, but they didn't really have a, a political machine in the country and they were obviously able to then ally themselves with the Liberal Party which had that nationwide political uh, apparatus and whilst it's seen as being a, uh, a historic um, failure you know I think we should remember that they did actually do pretty well in the 1983 election in terms of vote share and so on so um, perhaps uh, Perhaps all of those books on the on the SDP should be uh, um, translated into Russian and, and sent over there. Thanks very much indeed for joining us on on the podcast. It's uh, fascinating, and perhaps we uh, we can catch up again at some point in in the future when we uh, see some some more developments as, as this goes on. But uh, for the moment, Mark, thanks very much indeed. My pleasure. Delighted to be here, and yes, delighted to come back and to be shown all the various times in which I was probably wrong in my predictions. <laughs> thanks very much. And that's it for this episode of Opposition Cast. My sincere thanks again to Mark for joining us to talk about opposition in Russia, something I'm sure we will return to in future. In the meantime, uh, do check out his books, A Short History of Russia has just been published, and uh, you can still also get hold of uh, We Need to Talk About Putin, both of them uh, very readable and digestible books. And uh, you can also listen to his own podcast, uh, which is called In Moscow's Shadows, and his blog is of the same name as well. Uh, if you've enjoyed this podcast, uh, do make sure you share it with other people, uh, leave us a good uh, rating, subscribe, do all the other things that you need to do to boost us up the ratings and make us a massive international success. Um, and uh, I'll be back with you with another episode uh, in a few weeks' time. In the meantime, do look after yourselves, and I'll see you soon. Opposition Cast is produced by the Centre for Opposition Studies and presented by me, Nigel Fletcher. Do please subscribe and listen to our other episodes wherever you get your podcasts from. Oh, those Russians. <laughs>